Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise <laughs> yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. now does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear left turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta So listen, I know it's an aviation podcast, but here's the deal. I want me some of them secret olives, all right? Have you uh, you've seen this story, right? Have you guys seen it? Yeah. So what's it the made the hair on the back of my neck go up. It's, it's disturbing in many ways, and it's also bizarre. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a uh, let's see, I'm going to open the link here. There's a, I keep wanting to call it a mushroom farm, but it's not. It's an olive farm. There's an olive farm in some place, some place in Southern California. Come on, open up, here it is. The Eastern Coachella Valley. Coacula. Coacula, Coachella, Coachella. David, how do you say that? Coachella. That's good, that could be, that could be it. Anyways, um, there's, a, uh, there's a, uh, an olive farm, JCM Farming Incorporated, and they desperately do not want anyone, particularly hot air balloons, flying low over their farm for some un inexplicable reason. And as a result, they filed like a barrage of lawsuits uh, and basically shut down. The, the, this valley is apparently, or was, uh, quite the hot spot uh, for hot air ballooning. And... Uh, uh, but now it's basically been been shut down. That whole industry has been shut down because these guys don't want anybody flying low over their uh, all, over their secret olive farm. Well, they don't even want them flying next door to their secret olive farm, where you know a, a, an aerial applicator had been dropping uh, uh, some materials for pest control. Right, right. It, uh, you know, it's like uh, I'm sorry, but uh, who are these people, and why are they getting away with this? But my favorite, let's see now, I can't, where is it? There was another story about this. Um, oh, I know where it was. It's in the blog. Here, there's, a, there's, a, there's a forum post or two on There's it. a forum post, but the story that I pointed to in, uh, oh, maybe I didn't. I, I saw a, a, a story about this someplace um, where the uh, the mainstream media outlet that was that was writing the story published about six aerial photographs right, right. of the farm, which I thought was just great. It's like, they want it to be a secret, so let's publish all these stories. But uh, this, they can't do that. I mean, I understand they're, they're using the they legal system as a, as a weapon they're, here. They're doing it. Uh, but if, if justice prevailed, you can't... <laughs> <laughs> if justice prevailed, you can't stop somebody from flying a hot air balloon over your house. Can you? As long as they're at legal altitude. I mean, it, and the most they could force them up to is if the FAA went along with their claim that their farm is a... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. A popular area. These people from yes. flying over their property. They have yeah. effectively accomplished their objective. Right. Yeah. How long it will last is anyone's guess. Mm-hmm. It just you know, it then, goes to prove the old adage that anyone can sue anybody for anything at any time. At any time, and in this case, apparently doing a good job of it because they're throwing a lot of money and a lot of lawyer time at everything that moves through the air, uh, I guess within eyesight, 
I'd like to you know, know more about this. I'm reading through this, one of the, the lengthier stories on this. It says, the Federal Aviation Administration, that's the FAA for those of you who are coming in late, twice investigated the farm's complaints in 2009, found insufficient evidence to proceed with enforcement, and closed the matter. So what that tells me is that uh, the FAA could find no evidence that any of these operators were flying within 1,000 feet right. or 2,000 feet, depending yeah. on what kind of airspace this is. Um, of this uh, of this structure of this home, right? But and that's but that's an interesting question. The the numbers you just quoted are fixed wing altitudes. Mm -hmm. Helicopters have lower altitudes. Helicopters do balloons have lower altitudes as well? I don't know. Yeah, David, do you know? I don't believe they do. So no, I don't. Believe they, they are to the helicopter limits or to the fixed wing limits. Well, uh, the, I, I've been involved with some small amount of helicopter. I'm sorry, of hot air balloon ops. And um, a they don't go very high. Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, the, the average the average hot air balloon. A they don't go very high. And B, um, you kind of can't you know really judge all that well where it's going to come down. And one of them, like, we came down, we landed on uh, on private property, and mm -hmm. the owner was happy to see us and and you know helped us out, and we got on our way. Mm -hmm. um, so what? Yeah, and that's my point. It, 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 my understanding of the rationale behind the behind helicopters having lower rules is because they can go slower, they can land in more places, they don't need as much altitude to, uh, to be safe. Balloons would have the same, you know, benefit, I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Once again, we have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> well, re reading through this, I mean, the, 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 whoever wrote this article did a fairly nice job. The property is owned by John C. and Carol Morelli, who, who bought it in 1999. Um, and um, a lot of construction permits, yada, yada, yada. Um, substantial piece of property. It's a very nice looking piece of property. It's, you know, judging by the photographs taken from nearby and overhead the property. Anyways, it's weird. It's not right. It's just no. It's not right, and and hopefully, you know, I I don't know that the FAA can do anything. Um, here's here's a paragraph. Says you know, FAA regulations require all aircraft to fly a minimum of 500 feet over the highest obstacle on the ground unless they're you know unless they're landing or taking off, and a minimum of 1,000 feet in areas deemed congested. Um, the FAA does not consider the area near Oasis Ranch congested. Um, yeah, even though the people there have asked the FAA to designate it that way. Ah, well, yeah. we're not going to fix uh, this it, one it, here. I think that what the FAA can do is is weigh in as a uh, uh, friend of the court here and say, look, you know, we regulate the airspace. These people aren't doing anything wrong if they're not violating the rules. We investigated and they're not violating the rules. This should be dismissed because they have no standing to sue. Well, the problem is that no one has... You know, the big bucks here is the property owners, and they can push the the uh, file a new lawsuit button on their computer and file a new lawsuit. And yep. in the meantime, the people against whom they file it have to defend themselves. And one guy's talking about running up $130,000 worth of legal bills trying to defend against this, and he got nowhere, and he basically put him out of business. Um, someone needs to step up to the plate. AOPA, uh, um, to coin a phrase, might be might be interested, might should be interested. 
This is uh, and this is California wine country. I was going to say, and it's not a winery, so we know they have no conflict of interest. Uh, And I I asked AOPA uh, this morning uh, if they were, if this was on their radar screen and what they might be doing about it. Uh, They said that they they became aware of this, like pretty much everybody else, when the uh, California newspapers got their stories uh, in play uh, from Sunday and Monday. Uh, and that they were looking into it and not sure whether they'd have standing to uh, to do anything, but it was definitely on their radar screen, and, and I had a feeling they were going to pursue whatever I mean, how they, is this, they could pursue. How is this not like, we, we from time to time, we see a story where a local municipality tries to make you know um, laws that control the airspace over their town, and and in in every case i guess i'll say in every case the faa jumps in and straightens things out and everything's hunky dory why is that not happening here well um i guess it's a matter of who's bringing the lawsuits this is a private entity bringing lawsuits against other private entities um um whether or not he's alleging violation of the law uh the faa is not going to prosecute that but again, it just comes, and the FAA has no, FAA itself has no standing to enter these cases unless, you know, someone requests it to. It can't just arbitrarily, well, I guess it can, but if, but it's not an activist FAA or an activist government, so they wouldn't normally do this. I don't know. I mean, they can get away with it or getting away with it. Um, someone needs to step up to the plate and, and convince them the error of their ways. Yeah. Not only, you know, this is, this is, you know, we talk about the camel's nose in a tent kind of thing. This is exactly that. Um, just last week, uh, we, we heard some news stories about, uh, I think it was Santa Monica, California, which for years has been trying to ban jet aircraft, business jets, from the airport, got told once again by the federal government right. that they can't ban corporate jets, business jets, from the airport. The airspace and the airports are open to all users. Um, there might be a couple of local exceptions. One of them is the over this olive or mushroom. I, I can't keep it straight. Olive mushrooms uh, farm out in California. We got to. Uh, I know we're going to get in trouble if I say this. I, I think somebody's been eating mushrooms. If, the, if yeah, the, no. Here's what we should do. This is should, legit. This just bites. We need to. Pu- <laughs> we need to. It's, it's just the pit. All right. That's better than my idea. Welcome, folks, to episode 223 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Recording this episode on uh, Tuesday evening, February 1st, 2011, the day before Groundhog's Day. And, uh, and, and, uh, uh, yeah, I know. To those of you you who've listened to the last couple of episodes, uh, Jack's been down here in Florida staying at my place, and and we've been having a good old, a grand old time. And we're watching watching the the, the evil uh, television thing the other night, and one of the channels is advertising a, a, a marathon of the movie Groundhog Day starting tomorrow, twenty four hour marathon. And I, we just looked at each other. Why didn't we think of That's that? Genius. It's genius. It's genius. <laughs> so let's see. Where was I? Uh, February first, twenty thousand twenty eleven. And uh, let's, joining me here in the uh, in the virtual. It's just us chickens this week, by the way. It's just us chickens. Um, that's uh, uh, that that cluck cluck is Dave Igden, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hey, David, how you doing? Uh 
Well, I've stopped trying to shovel the snow away because it just blows back. That's what I was going to ask you about. Has this monster storm passed through your neighborhood yet? Not completely, no. It's still doing it out here. It uh, ebbs and flows. Uh, wind is still blowing snow hard enough that it sometimes I can't see 300 feet across the meadow next to our house. Uh, and uh, I think it got to seven today. Mm, I'm going to have Wichita. It got to, to as high as seven today. Yeah, it was about one or two at six this morning. Clearly, and I'm going to have to had been below twenty something. Clearly, I'm going to have to go back into four flight and revisit the plan for my driving starting tomorrow morning. I thought that I had this timed right. I was going to leave tomorrow oh, morning. No, man, you, you, oh no, bad, bad. You, you may want to try to get as far, as close as Orlando and stop. I was going to go all the way to Richmond, Virginia tomorrow, but uh, anyways, that's a story for another podcast. Well, I'll tell you this yeah. about about storms in the Mid Atlantic. Uh, D.C. especially, but but Eastern Virginia, Eastern Maryland. Um, if the storm doesn't come up the Atlantic coast, okay, up the Gulf Stream or something like that, where it can continue to pump moisture mm-hmm. uh, into cold air, the D.C. area just never gets that much snow. We'll get a they'll, they'll get a whop uh, from some ice storms and whatnot, but the real double whammy in snow it comes up the East Coast. Yeah, well, I'll take a look at it again. That, by the way, is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. So how are you doing today, Jeb? I'm well. Um, starting a new month and trying yep. to get some work done and, mm-hmm. and uh, kick you out the door and you know, yep. all heading, that kind of stuff. Heading home one of these days. i got to go home eventually. i got work to do up there. Um, but this, uh, this monster storm has just happened at exactly the wrong time in terms of my... Uh, I, was gonna, I was, wasn't even supposed to be here today. It's Tuesday night. I was supposed to leave Monday morning. And, uh, and arrive home on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning or something like that. Uh, and I saw this storm, and I said, well, I'm just not going to arrive in the middle of a blizzard. So uh, I delayed my departure now until tomorrow morning, which in theory will get me into New England right after the storm finishes, or about 12 hours after it finishes. Right, right this moment, people listening to this podcast are screaming, saying, don't do it, Jack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm glad Jeb brought it up to keep me from doing it. Well, I'm hearing, I mean, just about everybody's checked in. All my friends on Twitter have checked in. Um, even the satanic mechanic made a phone call and, uh, and said, don't go, Man, don't go, black. Jack. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll look at the weather again later on tonight, but I got to go home eventually. I can't, I want to stay here, but I can't. I have obligations. I have responsibilities. Uh, it, it's it's understandable, dude, and and that's Jack Hodgson coming no, to us I, I somewhere near Jeb Burnside. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, I was getting to that, David. I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. I'm Jack and Hodgson. And he's about to lose his mind. No, no, no. Yeah, I am. But uh, I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from uh, UCAP South, high atop the Hidden River Hill overlooking scenic Lake Flossie. <laughs> Florsheim. Jeb wants to name the alligator Florsheim. I think. And <laughs> Shawbatter wants to name it Flossie. Flossie. No, you want you. Oh, you can, was it Shawbatter? Somebody came up with Flossie. I did not come up. Someone I would on, not have come up with Flossie. Someone on the internet came up with uh, with uh, Fluffy. I like that. You could also name it Justin and and then call up the boot company. Yeah. So, anyways, Justin Alligator. 
Justin Alligator. I am still uh, here in uh, in Hidden River down here in Florida. I've been enjoying my visit just to death. I've been having such a good time uh, enjoying the weather and enjoying Jeb's company. And uh, Jeb helped me get my motorcycle running. So I've been riding my motorcycle and uh, we went flying. And uh, uh, that I, reminds me of a poem. And all the. What's that? Yeah, yes, what's that? I was going to say, it's a magical moment, but no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, so uh, now I've forgotten what I was going to say. It doesn't make any difference. Let's talk about airplanes. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. Uh, what's next on the list? I don't know. We have a list? Yeah, there's a list. Third Let's, base. Yeah, third base. Uh, huh? Buried Spitfires. Buried Spitfire. So this is pretty interesting. Uh, these folks in Australia have come to the conclusion, not only un, they unearthed some uh, historical information that suggests that a whole bunch of, uh, uh, what are they, Spitfires? Or, uh, yeah, Spitfires. Spitfire, Spitfire, Spitfire and Mark Spitfire. World War II era fighter planes uh, that were supposed to be destroyed at the end of World War II might not have been destroyed. Someone who couldn't bring himself back at that time to destroy them may have secreted them away. Um, they think they might be buried, um, buried in their shipping crates. So there's a chance that they would be in good shape. Um, the story goes that some of them might, in fact, never have been taken out of their crates. Yeah. They could be, be totally in pristine condition, buried in the dirt in you know dry uh, Australia. Wouldn't that be so it's cool? This, this kind of story that that you don't need Viagra for. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. It's a very very cool yeah. story. This could be now. There's no guarantee that it's real. Um, it's like uh, 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 it's it's definitely not confirmed. But the lost Dutchman mine. Exactly. That's the it's the. The treasure of Sierra Madre all over again here. Well, you see, the, the treasure of the Sierra Madre was there, and they dug it up, and they had it in the bags. Their problem was how things fell apart when they tried to go back with it. Uh, but the, the, the lost Dutchman mine is still out there somewhere, some, you know, somewhere around Phoenix, yeah. and it hadn't been found yet. Along with the Spitfires. Well, and there's Atlantis also. There's Atlantis. Maybe that's where these airplanes are. Uh, this is from this week's favorite um, aviation publication, the business... Uh, well, no, actually, no. I'm confused. What is this from? It's from the Australian.com, um, but it's also uh, mastheaded the Wall Street Journal. I'm not sure. Maybe it's the Australian version of the Wall Street Journal. In any event, the headline is Fact or Fable. Hunt is on for buried Spitfires. Uh, it's the oh, and here's a reference. What's Lassiter's Reef? Well, I've been thinking, I've been wondering about that, and stopping short of googling it, hoping somebody. Jeb's would googling know. it while I read this right now. It's the Lassiter's <laughs> Reef of Warbirds, a rumored stash of mint-conditioned spitfires hidden underground in rural Queensland. Many have searched for the legendary British fighters, reportedly still in their crates and hidden since the end of World War II around the creek. Queensland town of Oki. What's the, what's the name of the reef again? Lassiter, L-A-S-S-E-T-E-R. Uh, but so far, nobody's been able to lay claim to what would be a multi-million dollar find. Lassiter's Reef refers to the purported discovery in 1897 of a fabulously rich gold deposit in a remote and desolate corner of central Australia. Ah, Okay. All right. The lost Dutchman's mind. That's, <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Maybe maybe they'll yeah. find Fred Noonan. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, considering the lengths that people will go to recover uh, World War II aircraft that have been underwater or buried in the sand or you know, left in the jungle or out of the ice or, you know, can you imagine if we found a bunch of these things that were in well, new condition? I don't know where in, in Australia. I, I know, you know, nothing about Australian geography, but I do know. Uh, that certain portions of Australia, I think the north and eastern portions of the country, have been getting way too much rain. Yeah, they are flooded. Their airports have been flooded. Uh, lives have been lost. It is a big, big deal down there. And I note on the weather today that there's a cyclone headed straight for them from to that same general area of the country. So, um, if you know, these might get opened up, washed up somewhere. If they're in fact buried in Australia, uh, the, the, all the weather they've been having. So good luck to them, but you know, good luck to the people trying to find these things too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's the northeast corner, basically the northeast quarter of Australia, Queensland, and yeah, they've been real wet. Yeah. So. But that that doesn't mean that the uh, it, it, where these puppies are rumored to be buried itself got wet because there's varying levels of terrain in Queensland. Mm-hmm. Not all of it wound up underwater. Yeah. I'm drinking uh, Kugel's Classic Amber tonight. And uh, Jeb has his lemon juice here, lemonade or whatever it is. Water. Wa- Ice water. Ice water. Uh, David, what do you got? McAllen, 15-year-old single mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you knew it was going to end with year-old single mom. Yeah, well, you, you know. He's out there. No, I didn't know it was coming at all. Uh, that, <laughs> no, Jack, kinda, Jack, I'm talking to Jack when I say that. Yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> Jeb and I have uh, on in the, in the uh, far side of the room here, uh, the TV is on but muted, playing the movie High and the Mighty. Um, which now, all right, I have a confession, true confessions here. I've never seen this movie. Well, we'll start it over again. Yeah. Then. Tell me about what's the, so it's John Wayne and it looks like it's, some interesting imagery about aviation. Is it real? Is it good? Is it? It's, it's an Ernie. It's an adaptation of an Ernie Gann book. Mm-hmm. The High and the Mighty is the name of the book. Yeah. Um, it's basically a um, uh, DC six loses an engine over uh, just past the point of no return on its way from Hawaii to San Francisco. Okay. And this is in the fifties. Obviously, it's a mm-hmm. scheduled DC six, and uh, um, the. Um, the damaged engine is canted down, creates some more drag, and they don't know if they've got enough fuel to make uh, land. Mm-hmm. And so they go through the whole thing of pitching stuff overboard and to lighten the load. And and um, I forget the the name of the actor. Um, Sir Robert Stack. Robert, thank you. Robert Stack is the is the captain yeah. uh-huh. of the flight. John Wayne is the co-pilot. And there's some other interesting people scattered throughout the cabin. It's kind of a precursor to... John Wayne is the co-pilot. John Wayne is the Yeah, co-pilot. he's the first officer on this, baby. Right. How does that work? Uh, the, the, you have to see you wouldn't the, have thought his have, agent would allow that to happen. You have to see the movie. Good casting. You have to <laughs> okay. see the movie to understand why he's the co-pilot. I, I did notice that. I noticed that John Wayne was in the right seat, and I was wondering, what the heck is up with that? Why isn't John Wayne in the left seat? And I'm wondering if it's because... The, you know, there's some sort of bizarre movie star thing where uh, we wouldn't want to be. I need to be in the right hand seat, even though I'm the captain. Right. But he's not the captain; he's the first he's first, the first officer. officer. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, there, you know, it's it's really one of the first um, modern disaster movies where they do uh, character development. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's kind of a precursor to the movie Airport, 
and of course airplane and everything else uh, which, <laughs> you know took took a different tack on a lot of those mm-hmm. um, but but uh, it's it's a it's a solid movie and it's got airplanes in it so what what else can yeah. you ask for yeah I know and John Wayne which is not John so, Wayne yeah right so so these folks it's, this is it's not a, exactly it's a, it's a great flick and it's it, it's so unusual you know the, you don't often see first officers in chaps. <laughs> That was a John Wayne Western. It was a John Wayne Western reference, but it could be taken a lot of different ways. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, Let's see now. These folks, this is not really a general aviation story, but I think it's kind of interesting. Um, They loaded a whole bunch of paper airplanes. I'm looking for the actual quantity of paper airplanes. But hundreds, apparently, hundreds of uh, 200. 200 paper airplanes got loaded into this weather balloon, which then went way up into the sky, like up to 36,500 meters um, above the surface. And um, and then they released these paper airplanes at 36,000, which is, what's 36? That's like, that's that's like 100,000 feet, 100, a little over 100,000 feet. 130,000 yeah. feet. So um, they let these things go, and they drifted to the ground and, of course, scattered in different directions. And they're claiming that although this thing was launched from, ooh, see, uh, uh, from near Wolfsburg, Germany, uh, they've found these paper airplanes um, as far away as Winnipeg in Canada, right? Um, which is kind of cool. They, uh, well, oh, those only, were the ones that went airmail, right? Not, not only did they launch all these paper airplanes... But all of the paper airplanes had an SD card mm-hmm. attached to them. Um, it, it was a Samsung p- publicity stunt, right, but yeah. putting all that aside. So uh, they've got all these messages back from these memory cards that people have found you know, all over, from all over the world. Yeah. Appar- apparently from all over yeah, the world. So I, don't, I don't know. I haven't gotten far enough into the story. Uh, well, there were also oh. reports that the planes landed as far away as the city of Turlock in Northern California and in Winnipeg, Canada, while others may have landed in South Africa and the Netherlands. Yeah. Did, did, you, did you guys say this, and I miss it? What's that? They launched them from 36,500 meters. Meters, right. yeah. You said meters. It was about meters. 100. That's like 130,000 <laughs> feet. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing they fell straight down for a while. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. they're not a lot of What's flying What's the terminal air? velocity of this specific design of yeah. paper airplane? Yeah, I with, wonder, with, a, with an SD card. I wonder how far they had to fall before they'd really generate enough lift to do anything interesting. Well, that would be an interesting... Uh, uh, yeah, but uh, I think this is also, though, a graphic illustration, Jeb, of, of what you were trying to explain to me last week, which is that um, if flying over the Gulf of Mexico we had lost the engine, we would have been able to coast all the way to the land. <laughs> That's, or most of the way to land. <laughs> most of the way, yeah. There were some guys in a... Think, there was think a, of some guys in a uh, uh, Malibu that came up short uh, back not long ago, and uh-huh. not real short, but they knew they were going to be short. And yeah, so well, okay. think think of all these these paper airplanes with their chips attached to them that have now are at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I know. Think about what well, the percentages. A whole bunch of them didn't make it, right? Yeah, I, I'm wondering how many of them possibly could have invaded the the ADIS. And, 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 and he illegally assaulted the Potomac River somewhere as a security risk. Oh, inside. they scrambled the F-15s, the whole thing. Right, huh? they missed that one. 
I've always wondered what would happen if somebody would do something like that over DC. What's that? Fly an RC airplane just in or dump a bunch of transponders out the door. <laughs> <laughs> but this is purely a hypothetical this is situation. Purely hypothetical. Children right, we would do not that. try this at home. <laughs> do not. Or would we advocate doing that? Yeah, right. No, no not even think about no, it. No, but it's an interesting thought experiment, you know. <laughs> Uh, David, uh, you're telling yeah. us here that there's some interesting stuff going on in the latest issue of, uh, of what, of, uh, Callback. Oh, always. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what'd you find this time? Well, this month's, uh, well, the last month's now, January 2011, uh, is devoted to pilot reports and situations where either the possession of a good good and well-timed pilot report, or the absence of one had an effect on the outcome of a flight that a reporter gave to the aviation safety reporting system. Mm -hmm. uh, always a good read. Uh, it, for me, it was kind of a reminder, since I'm not flying as much as I need to or as regularly, you kind of let a little rust glaze over things like, yeah, I, I, I always like filing pyreps because it gave me a few minutes of talking to somebody other than a controller. And it was usually because there was some information worth passing along. Mm -hmm. Or how many times I changed course or diverted a little bit or was able to proceed because I've told me then better than I told me expect. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, and, and I'm guilty too. I don't file enough pyreps, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good and valuable thing. Well, when it's severe and clear, I, I don't bother with pyreps. Um, I will, whenever I talk to flight service, I will routinely give a pyrep, and I'll occasionally be asked for and or give them directly to ATC. Hey, that was a rough ride, or mm -hmm. uh, now we're in the clear now on the backside of this. Yeah, or, I remember you or, did that a couple of times when we were flying the IFR stuff back from um, Wichita a while back. Yeah. Um, but isn't isn't the fact that it's clear in a million? Valuable information as well. Well, it is, but it's also in the forecast and the observation. Yeah, but you know, you know a real report yeah. that it's real, that it's well, well, correct. If, if, if you know, on the other hand, there were a bunch of clouds and the forecast was for severe clear, I'd give a pilot pyrep on that. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, because that's I, I want to know when something doesn't go according to plan. Uh, it isn't going according to plan. So mm -hmm. always, yeah. always when conditions are significantly different than forecast. Sometimes when they are as forecast, when them being as forecast might help somebody who's sitting on the edge of it going, maybe it'll get better before I get there. Yeah, I mean, uh, a PIREP, you know, if, if the um, forecast for the freezing level is at 8,000 and uh, you're at 7,000 and you see 33 degrees on the outside air temperature and you're in Moraine, um, that's something I'd want to know about. I'd want other people to know about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's a good read. The link will be in the show notes. And yeah, it's it's always a good read, and and um, uh, it's a free subscription. Um, you get a little blurb monthly in your email box, and a link to click, and you can not click it or you can click it. Um, it's it's definitely it's, worthwhile. Yeah. This was this was issue three hundred and seventy two. Think about how long they've been doing this. This is a NASA project, too, think, by the way. You'd think they'd have gotten it right by now. <laughs> you'd think so, but that's that's they they never run out of things to do because we never run out of things to do wrong. 
Yeah, Speak for yourself. Yeah, really. I know. Uh, let's see now. AOPA eBrief's newsletter uh, had a, uh, from time to time, are running polls now asking people for, you know, the, some aspect of their aviation experiences. And uh, recently they published a poll asking people how long it took them to get their private pilot certificate, how long was their primary training. And uh, I've talked in the, po- in the past on the podcast about the fact that mine was something like over a year, like a year and a half or something like that. And that's, of course, how I answered this poll. I was surprised to see the results of the poll. And admittedly, this is not very scientific, not a good, necessarily a, a good uh, sample. But of the people who answered this poll um, on uh, AOPA's, from AOPA's newsletter, um, by far the most common answer was six months. Uh, people got their pri- did, con- completed their primary training in six months. Did that, does, did that surprise you guys when you saw that, or do you think that's... Uh, it didn't surprise me all that much. Yeah? I, I, don't, I don't know what I expected. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I think that uh, perhaps there's a lot more people who have uh, gone through a, a, a focused course uh, on, on learning how to fly uh, over a set period of time uh, than used to do it the old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least, at least uh, shall we say, the people responding to this poll uh, have, have gone through an accelerated program as opposed to uh, doing it the old-fashioned way over a longer period of time. Uh, I, I put this uh, item in the uh, new improved UCAP blog, and uh, a couple I'm of... I'm trying to find a link to it. I, I, uh, it what happened, what you have to do is the link that uh, we right. originally had for it has timed out, and uh, but fortunately, I grabbed a copy of the results and put them in our new improved blog. Uh, so if you go into the yeah. January archive for our blog and find a story called, How Long Did It Take to Get Your Private Pilot Certificate? Two listeners you know, have... Something that ticked me off. There were no choices available less than six months. Uh, smart Alec. Um, no, 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 no. I'm serious. Yeah. Uh, because Jeb's talking about people going through organized courses and such. And uh, I know people, you may know people who went through an organized program who did it in less than six months, who did it in two or three uh, because they were ready to. To, to, to move, and then they were going to move on to new things beyond that, like their instrument. Uh, I've met kids who've gone to college programs where at the end of their first year, now we're talking a 12-month cycle there, they got their private, uh, their instrument, their commercial, and their multi-engine, and their multi-engine instrument, all done in about 10 months. Talking about some real intensive stuff. Yeah. That's a tiny percentage, I, I think, overall. But the fact that they didn't give us an option shorter than six months, I think, might have caused us to lose some responses. Yeah. Um, in, the, in one of the comments to the uh, uh, blog posting about this, uh, listener Brad, Brad Co- I want to say Cohn, I get the feeling that I've stumbled over his name before and he's correct me, and I apologize for not remembering the correction, but I'm going to say Cohn, Brad Cohn. Uh, writes, he said, three months, he said, 40.0 hours. He said, in Minnesota, in the winter slash spring. Damn. He says, I took my check ride on uh, 430. 
He says, with the wife and kids back home, he says, it can be done, but you need to make training a priority for a while. Study hard, ask questions, analyze your performance, and learn as much as you can. You can do it. I I am not, and hats off to the guy, and and I just love hearing stories like that. I I would ask how much exposure to general aviation had he had prior to formally starting training. Oh, okay. You think he had a head start somehow? I'm not saying he had a head start. I'm saying he might have grown up around it or or uh, uh, absorbed some knowledge some other way. Or certainly he got the desire to go through the program in that quickly amount of time and, and succeeded in doing it. He, he definitely had some determination. Mm-hmm. That tells me that he, he probably had some exposure to it beforehand. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Um, it took me... Um, well, let's, I don't know exa- I don't have my... Uh, I have the logbook. I just haven't looked at it lately to determine when I took my first lesson. But I soloed in August and got my private in April of the following year. Right. Yeah. So See? that was what seven months? No, uh, eight or nine months. Right. Um, and a lot of that was because I didn't have uh, an instructor. Uh, the, the the I was depending on the local FBO for instructors. And they went without one for a couple, three months. Oh, really? Yeah. See, it took me a month, took me a year and a half, give or take. Likewise, um, I had I had one of my I just getting I was getting close to the check ride, and my and my instructor got the call from the airlines and uh, and left me. And so I had to change instructors, which that set it didn't set me back exactly, but it means that he wanted the new instructor wanted to kind of redo some stuff, and um, so I lost time for that. Um, I lost time because of a uh, just plain old I stopped for a little while like for about three months I think work interfered and then I also lost some time because it took me forever to do my cross countries Um, believe it or not out in California I got limited by weather for a long period of time where I couldn't do my cross countries no that's not a believe it or not in northern California brother. so uh, so it took me a year and a half uh, and I thought the answer would be more like a year give or take I was kind of surprised that it was only six months um, also listener Greg Marshall uh, writes he says took me over a year was just about to finish my solo cross country requirement and book my flight test when my first daughter arrived a month early so congratulations on the daughter part absolutely but, but, absolutely. Uh, but uh yeah. Has, she, has she learned how to fly yet? Yeah, I don't know. I don't you know. didn't by any chance name her Ariel, did you? <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, Ariel was the, was the mermaid, wasn't she? Never mind. Uh, <laughs> that's, the second, that's the second Little Mermaid reference that Jeb's heard in a week. Yeah, yeah. And all it does is make him think of sushi. No, he still hasn't gotten either one of them. Uh, Jeb has a little robot that uh, Jeb being the guy who's like freaked out about Skynet and the robots taking over has more robots helping him take care of his home here than I've ever seen. He has what, four? Three. Three, count them, three of these little Roomba things or whatever they're called. Mm-hmm. All right. And they, and, and they periodically wander around the, the, uh, the house, you know, doing their little thing. Um, and he's got a similar kind of thing. He's got sort of like a, 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 an aquatic Roomba that wanders around in his pool, all right, and, <laughs> and cleans the bottom of his pool. And I was looking at it the other day trying to figure out what we might call it, and I realized that it reminded me of the um, hermit crab from Little Mermaid. Whose name we think is Sebastian. We think is Sebastian. Je- David, strangely enough, I think you might know the name of this. What, what was the hermit crab in, in, uh, in Little Mermaid? 
The only crab cartoon character I keep up with is one in a strip called Sherman's Lagoon. Oh, okay. What's the crab called there? You would ask, and I would. <laughs> so, what I was asking before you disappeared was whether or not you knew the name of the hermit crab from The Little Mermaid. I do not. Uh, I was between my kids were grown up and my grandkids weren't around yet when that was on the theater. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, I have to admit, I didn't take any dates to that one. Yeah, we're, we're, Jeb and I are both asking the internet right here. Uh, right, well,. All this presumes I would. All this presumes I wish to nickname my pool vac. <laughs> you don't seem to have a little. You don't really have all that much of a choice here. Uh, we're probably going to end up cutting this all out of the podcast. There's Sebastian, there it is, right there, Sebastian. It is Sebastian. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me ask you: If Sebastian comes to call, does he bring his own drawn butter? No, I don't know. You wouldn't want to eat this, Sebastian. He's like a little plastic guy, but. Uh, David, I'm afraid I'm not familiar with Larry Newman. Can you tell me a little bit about Larry Newman? Oh, boy. Larry Newman was uh, one of the pioneer hang gliding manufacturers and pilots. He was a pioneer in the ultralight movement. Uh, He was uh, one of the three crewmen uh, of the balloon Double Eagle Two that accomplished the first balloon crossing of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, We're going back to the 70s here. Uh, Larry was an airline pilot. He was a charter pilot. He was a skydiver. He survived a a, uh, ride down with uh, an unopened parachute. Really? And somehow came back. a likeness of him is in the Air and Space Museum in the actual uh, gondola of Double Eagle 2. Because uh, flying a balloon across the Atlantic had been, you know, one of the holy grails, one of the unattainables for years until I think it was uh, it was Newman, Abruzzo, and I'm trying to remember the name of the third guy. And Larry was along because supposedly when they got to France... He was going to climb down a ladder and hook into a hang glider that his company made mm-hmm. and cut loose from the balloon and fly the uh, hang glider down to a landing and make that part of the touchdown in Europe after the, the first Atlantic crossing in a hotter balloon. And unfortunately, they had to ditch the glider uh, over the Atlantic because they needed to lose weight to stay aloft at all. When, when, but they what, made it. What time frame was this? I remember the the event, but I don't remember the timing. Uh, I want to say 76, 77. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Larry Newman passed away recently. Larry Newman passed away from pancreatic cancer uh, just about a week ago, uh, Monday on the 24th of January. It was 1978. Maxie Anderson had been a Bruzo. Uh, they also worked on a, a crossing of the Pacific Ocean and succeeded in that as well. Uh, Anderson died in a ballooning accident uh, in 1983 in this long-distance balloon race called the Gordon Bennett Race. 
Abruzzo died in a plane crash in Albuquerque in 85. Uh, and Larry lasted until 2011. God bless him. Uh, he and I were oil and water the first couple of years. We knew one another and eventually developed some grudging respect and later uh, uh, something of a friendship. And uh, sorry to hear the Larry's demise. He, uh, he accomplished a lot. He came a long way. Uh, and I hope he's remembered more for the better parts of his life. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very, very sad, but thank you for telling me about him. This story is, uh, this is from a few weeks ago. This is uh, uh, not, uh, uh, this particular incident is not relevant any longer because it's already happened, but I'm curious about the, the general aspect of it. This is a flight advisory from FAA, um, dated, uh, uh, I think it was earlier in January. Uh, yeah, January 20 through, well, actually, I guess it's still going on. Um, they're warning us of degraded GPS signals in a particular area of the country. And uh, um, I'm wondering just how often this stuff happens. Is this, what's this all about? Do you know? I don't know what it's all about. Um, the, the, presumption on my part is that the DOD and, and other spooks are out testing their ability to jam and or spoof GPS. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have thought they'd have figured all this out by now. Oh, figure what out? How, How to jam and spoof GPS. Yeah. Um, but the punchline is um, until February 22, <clears throat> um, they're going to be doing these tests. GPS may be unreliable and may be unavailable within 370 nautical miles. That's big. Of a point that is about uh, 50 miles off the coast of Georgia, almost due east uh, off the so coast of off Georgia. off the coast, but spilling back on to, right. to land. So, so um, you're, you're talking about, just doing the, the quick math here, um, um, 320 nautical miles inland from the, from the Atlantic, they're, they're, they're going to be doing this. Um, decreasing in the area with a decrease in altitude to a circle with a radius that are the 325 nautical miles at flight level 250. Uh, I don't know. That's not very much well, smaller. What, what's, what's curious about that is, the, the, according to this notice anyway, unless it's a misprint, the affected area um, decreases in altitude. That makes sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. Normally, uh, especially with a ground-based transmitter, you would have uh, expanding uh, coverage at altitude. Well, I don't know. I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, my initial impression was that it would be a sphere centered on wherever it is they're doing this mischief. Mm-hmm. And, and as, a, as a sphere, it would get smaller at, as it got higher, so, so to speak. My, my I mean, thinking is it's airborne. Well, uh, but it's still a sphere, whether it's from, from well, an altitude. It, it's an inverted. David, climb. what do you know about this? Anything? Well, it, first, first off, it is wider the higher you go. That 370 nautical mile radius is a maximum at some unspecified altitude that narrows to 325 at 250 to 260 at 10,000 
to 215 nautical right. miles. I was at re- 400, you're reading it wrong. You're 4,000 right. feet. You're absolutely right. I was reading it wrong. You're right. And, and, and to me, that exemplifies some kind of directional uh, broadcast of whatever it is they're doing. Uh, but Jesus, 215 nautical mile at 4,000 feet AGL uh, from the coast of Georgia. Uh, that's or from 50 miles off Whoa. the coast of Georgia. There's, there's a, a map. There's a map as part of this. That's a big yeah, area. That's a huge area. It's a great big area, dude. This area covers all of Florida. I mean, in, to varying degrees, it covers all of Florida, all of Georgia, two thirds of Alabama, all of South Carolina, uh, almost up into Virginia. Almost up. It, it actually touches Virginia, but not by much. But uh, goes off into Tennessee, a lot I'm of sorry, North Carolina. I'm sorry, it doesn't encompass Virginia. You know, that's just a big area that's yeah. being affected by this whole thing. All right. Oh yeah, it catches Chattanooga, it catches Nashville, uh, goes way right Atlanta. through Atlanta. Thank you, uh, and uh, Huntsville and Birmingham, uh, damn near. Uh, to Mobile. You think about that. Yeah. Almost to Mobile, Alabama at 370. Yeah. Uh, now, more and more business traffic and uh, finally airline traffic is beginning to do stuff that's based on uh, RNP standards, uh, required navigation performance, uh, which can give them access to arrivals and, and, and routes that save a lot of fuel. This is going to screw the pooch on those for those periods. Here's here's my question. Here's my question. Um, On one hand, we've got this this great little nav system that works well most of the time if, if, you know, the DOD and other spooks would stop messing around with it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Put put that aside. Now we also have an FAA who wants to make this the primary navigation system. With mm-hmm. no backup. With no backups. Yeah. Okay. What's wrong with this picture? I know. I know. Everything. In Everything. the forums, uh, in the forums, uh, listener Laminar um, says uh, Western U.S. pilots are used to this. He says, especially near China Lake and White Sands facility. Uh, the schedule is kept here, and he gives us a link to a, a PDF file that is called GPS interference. Uh, he continues, uh, he says, uh, and yes, what they are testing, he puts that in the word testing in quotes, what they are testing is their ability to jam the signal. That's why they ask for feedback from GA pilots. He says, you are part of the test. Well, I got, a, I got an idea, okay? Why don't they try this nonsense and take it, take it to Afghanistan? <laughs> we kind of like own that place. And, and, and most of the citizens there don't really depend on GPS in their, in their daily comings and goings. So let's go jam that country's GPS for a few weeks. I'd be willing to bet we are, but okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think another thing going on here, you know, jamming is not that difficult with GPS. Uh, and there's all kinds of sites that show you how and why. I'm not going to get into it. Yeah, what I think weeks. is being tested here is their ability to countermeasure that and still get usable, accurate GPS performance out of their own receivers. Because I, 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 testing it, how jamming would work is easy. Uh, testing the countermeasures is what they're... So if their devices are working well and other people are saying, wow... You know, my Garmin 530, it just went into the tank during that testing period. 
they nod and wink at one another and go, yeah, we're on to something. Yeah. Well, the, the double reverse whammy spin on this, notwithstanding, um, I don't know why they need to do this in, in, in civilian, <coughs> excuse me, in, excuse me, again, in civilian airspace. Um, Agree. And, and why they need to, to use up so much territory in doing it. And, and why they haven't figured this stuff out already. It, it, GPS has been around for, for going on two decades. Over a pretty long period of time, too. Well, I think part of it's because they lost selective, what was it, selective availability? I think so, yeah, SA, yeah. And so now they're trying to figure out another way to degrade everybody but them. Right. Not that I, I, I don't want to go off and start sounding all Glenn yeah. back paranoid. Yeah. Like, right. The engine's on fire on High and the Mighty right now, and uh, so they're getting to the real uh -oh. exciting part here. Pull the bottles. Yeah. Uh, let's see now. I want to get this right. Um, this is from a story on abweb.com. Uh, it says, Jewel patents organism that makes Jet A? Question mark. So that's a question. That's, the headline is a question. Uh, the first sentence of this story reads, Jewel Unlimited, a U.S. biotech company, has earned a patent for a, quote, proprietary organism, end quote, that it says takes carbon dioxide, sunshine, and dirty salt or clear water and puts out liquid hydrocarbons. Um, and they claim that this is a short step away from fuel, jet A or whatever, kerosene. Uh, what are you turning, turning lead into gold? Uh, yeah, you know, proprietary organism. Yeah, well, that's that's the, all the rage these days. Is that you, you know, patenting a bug of some sort? But uh, um, wouldn't it be something if somebody came up with with a uh, you know to be able to be able to grow, you know, avgas? Well, th there's there's that's the root. Of, uh, of several things that are going on in, in terms of uh, developments for renewable fuels from right, the swift fuel people uh, to several others where they're using algaes that exist in nature and I don't think are particularly patentable in a patented process. Right. But the ones that seem most bona fide so far want to use food stock. They want to use uh, corn and, and uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then, like you say, the ones that are kind of trying to be a little bit more, you know, kind of fit into the marketplace um, are, are saying algae and stuff that people don't want to eat. These guys claim that they can take water, all right, uh, and mix it together with their bug, which then grabs carbon dioxide and sunlight and makes... Uh, it defecates Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> which is, a, there's a joke there someplace. <laughs> I, don't I, just, know. I just want to put that out there. I know, yeah. So what... Uh, hey, taking carbon out of the atmosphere is kind of a common factor in almost all these processes yeah, of using of something no to to grow fuel. David, it sounds like you're kind of like taking this seriously. Well, I, I'm not taking this particular one any more or less serious than any of the others. The idea of using dirty water as the feedstock uh, is going to take some proving for my part because, you know, no, no joking, it approaches that turning lead into gold alchemy that, you know, had people looking for the lost Dutchman's mine back a few centuries ago, it's going to be the but it's no secret that 
that there are a number of processes that use different types of algaes and different feedstock to create a product that can then be refined into a fuel. It's yep. not fuel as it comes out of the algae. It's the feedstock for the refinery. And most of those, uh, in most of those, taking carbon out of the atmosphere is one of the big pluses of it and one of the common traits to how it works. Uh, because, you know, hydrocarbon, think about that. The fuels we burn are hydrocarbons. They are very heavy on carbon content. Uh, when you burn a tree, you put way more poundage of carbon into the atmosphere than you would think from the weight of the wood that you burn because all the years it's growing the tree's been absorbing carbon and turning it into its structure so if you can take carbon out of the atmosphere and use it in a process that puts it into the food the the processing stock to refine it into a usable fuel where it will when burned put that carbon back into the atmosphere you have essentially a carbon neutral fuel which, you know, a lot of people say is a good thing for our atmosphere and, mm -hmm. and climate and so forth. So uh, my thought is anything that gets us closer to being independent of imported fuel stocks is not a bad thing. So, you know, the, but patenting this is not a big particular surprise. The idea that they could create a unique organism that will take carbon out of water, dirty water, that's going to be interesting to watch. How many of these proprietary organisms is, are required, functioning at 100%, are required to produce one gallon of, of um, their effluent? I don't know. I don't know. But if we got a beaker full of them and dumped them into your pond out back, we could call it Lake Jet A. <laughs> <laughs> Right now, we're right now we're going to call it one corner of it the UCAP Lagoon. The UCAP Lagoon. Jeb's hot to put a drawbridge in now. Yeah, is because he a wants a drawbridge to the island. Yeah, well, see, here's the a deal. Fantasy island. Yeah. Here's the deal. All right, it's a it's a fairly you know decent sized pond that has an island. Dax Dax Mab smack dab in the middle of the of the <laughs> of, it. of the uh, pond, and there's Open a wooden there's a very Dax scenic looking wooden footbridge that crosses out to the island. All right. What what I was saying is that Jeb, you know, the, if you had your amphib ultralight, you could take off from your pond, but you'd have to do oh. circles. All right. Oh. But then the, the problem would be that that the, the bridge is in the way. So what we decided we we're going to do is change the bridge to a bridge to a drawbridge. That way you can do laps until you build up airspeed and then take off. All it takes is a sawzall and a couple of door hinges. Yeah. Have you thought about? Putting some, you know, Florida category large uh, uh, fireworks rockets and making it a Jado launch. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. Too. Yeah, we could do that. I mean, if, you, if you're doing ultralight on floats, it's part 103. You can get away with whatever as long as you stay with. Come back, David. Come back, Come back David. He's going to lose. Oh, oh, you are still there. Say okay. something, David. Something, David. All right, you are back now. All right. So, uh, I don't know. Before we were so rudely interrupted, David, you've... Uh, uh, Put Roman see. candles on, this, on, on it and turn it into a Jado assist. Yeah. yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, 
one of these items in the list, David, you labeled uh, advice on buying corporate jet misses best option. What did you mean by that? Oh, I remember this. This was. This has been on the list for a couple of weeks, folks. So yeah. give, him, give him a chance to refresh his memory. From something tall, W R A L Techwire. Uh, lawyers from a very professional and specialized firm, Warden Smith PA, uh, produced a little column talking about the options for buying a corporate jet. And the headline, want to buy a corporate jet, don't get grounded before leaving the runway. And they talked about all these structures and mechanisms uh, that basically either force you to turn it into a 135 operation or hand it off to somebody else to manage it, uh, setting up separate entities and all that. And I said, what about plain old-fashioned Part 91? You own the airplane. You own the pilot. He's an employee or she's an employee. They fly for you. It's straight and simple, and you never – because what they were warning against was all the possible – regulatory entanglements that you could get into if you didn't adhere to regulations governing 135 if you did the airplane wrong like you set up a separate corporation to own the airplane and then you rented the airplane from the corporation or chartered it and the corporation wasn't a 135 what about if you just own the bloody thing and insure accordingly yeah, there's there's several options here that are not yeah. that are not considered as far as ownership structures are concerned. Um, I, yeah, I can't get too worked up about it though. It's just you know, yeah, this article law, is just right. a law firm trolling for business. It's and, exactly this is yeah. a yeah this is a because anybody who's got the money who's going to go to the expense of buying into all or part of a big airplane like this is going to get the right kind of advice to not get jammed up on all these other regulatory and bureaucratic things. I, you know, I, I agree with Jeb. I think this is just... This well, is I think it struck me that the advice they were giving was the advice that would cause you to call somebody like them. Yeah, when exactly. just well, doing it as a Part 91 wouldn't require you to call anybody like them. It would require you to call somebody like NBAA. Yeah, so... David, another thing you called our attention to, are you saying that there are some BizJet folks that are helping people get out of Egypt? Yeah. What's yeah, going you, on? You know, I'm not saying this is charity now. Uh, but the, uh, the uh, article, Joe Sharkey from the New York Times, does pretty good stuff about air travel and was on the, uh, the uh, Legacy 600 coming out of Brazil when it had the midair uh, right. with yep. 737, okay? Uh, so the guy's got some chops in my book. Uh, so he's been talking about how charter flights and private aircraft are getting travelers out of Egypt when they're in the midst of the upheaval that's going on in, uh, among other countries in the Middle East uh, and the Mediterranean, uh, Egypt right now. Uh, and, and the first thing that popped into my head is, wow, you know, uh, isn't it funny how often general aviation, even if it's for higher general aviation, can do what the commercial carriers can't do or maybe do it in a better way than the commercial carriers can for the people that are needing it. We saw it during the earthquake in Haiti over a year ago. Uh, we've seen it with uh, disasters in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, hurricanes and the oil spill. Uh, and here it is. 
people trying to get out of Egypt ahead of the upheaval there that you know makes them a little fearful for their safety. And one of the best options for the people that are able to is private aircraft. Uh, We saw it a a while back, a year or so ago, when President Clinton uh, wanted to go to North Korea to negotiate the release of some... I thought it was President Clinton. Yeah, it was. To get the release of those two women that were... uh, David, was it President Clinton or Vice President Gore? I thought it was Clinton. I but, thought it was President Clinton, too. In any event, um, uh, a high-ranking uh, high, uh, ranking uh, U.S. Uh, politician wanted to go to North Korea, um, one who might normally be able to avail themselves of sort of official pseudo-military transportation, but couldn't do that in this case. And uh, they caught a ride on a fractional, I think, or something like that, didn't they? It was a uh, uh, BBJ, as I recall. Yeah. Boeing business jet, which is um, um, advanced seven three thirty seven. Right, but it was privately owned. It was privately owned. It was privately owned. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're right. August of two thousand nine. You know, once again, we're seeing general aviation. You know, being part of saving the day. And uh, let's let's be clear. We're not talking about a couple of people in in uh, in some Syri. Uh, running, running in, in, <laughs> in, in, of, in, in and out of Alexandria. Okay, uh, what we're talking about are some heavy iron operators. Here's here's a, a group that chartered a seven thirty seven to get their employees out. It cost them fifty thousand dollars, and it's probably worth every penny of that. Um, uh, oh, Airbus, probably Airbus. way cheaper than human yeah. mailing. Oh, too. exactly. Some Airbuy and, and and other types are mentioned. This is the heavy iron. This is the the uh, uh, the football team kind of charter uh, thing that you're looking at that that class of aircraft yes that's general aviation no question about it um, but it's it's not the Sunday afternoon uh, skim the skim the Cubs tires over the grass runway general aviation yeah yeah okay shout outs let's see now what do we got here uh, I've got one here uh, from a listener who goes by the uh, name mountains mountains to skies uh, in the forums, he says, uh, after two and a half years and 93 hours of flight training, I finally turned 16 on January 23rd. Too windy to fly, but today, uh, he's now writing on January 30th, four days later, four days after his 16th birthday, he says, I finally soloed. He said the CFI had me do 15 touch and goes. All right. Um, apparently, there was a lot That's of traffic. Cruel in the, I know, really. Punishment. Uh, but finally, once it quieted down, he told me to, cu- to uh, call a full stop. Uh, they taxied into the terminal uh, where his parents were standing by to watch this momentous moment. Um, and uh, the CFI climbed out and my uh, Mountains to skies, uh, taxied out and uh, did his solo flight. So we just want to congratulate him for uh, for his Absolutely. perseverance and for his uh, his accomplishment and uh, keep up the good work. Way to go, man! I mean, geez, I remember my CFI said we need to top off the uh, tank, and while we're doing that, you might want to call your wife. Why would I want to call my wife? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, so that if, if you wanted to be here while you solo. Oh, am I going to solo? Yeah, as soon as your wife gets here. Ah, okay. Yeah. Reminds me of the old Rodney Dangerfield joke. Uh, I don't get no respect. Says, um, my wife and I decided we needed to talk more during sex. She called me from a hotel last night. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Other shout-outs. Who's got something? Anybody got anything? I got a Did bunch I of... Wait, what, go ahead, David. No, go ahead, Jack. 
I just, I got, let's see now. I just wanted to, uh, I kind of uh, mentioned this earlier without pointing out its significance, and that is that uh, we got the first comment. Uh, commenter person dun, 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 dun. leaving a comment on the the brand new new improved UCAP blog. Uh, uh, we want to thank uh, Greg Marshall for breaking the ice and uh, leaving the first comment. He's actually left three or four comments now, and that's great. Um, so we thank him for doing that, and we encourage everybody to get in there and uh, and leave comments. So that's that's one shout out I've got. And then the other shout-out I've got is just a little shout-out to the sixth grade. I'm, I'm stretching this out while I'm waiting for the page to open in my browser here. Uh, the Victorville, I think it's California, but yeah. the Victorville, California sixth grade class, uh, the uh, Endeavor School, uh, are building an ultralight, or an LSA, I guess, a uh, um, and uh, it's just a great project. Um, the uh, the teacher arranged for the kids to be working on building this ultralight. Uh, sixth graders construct light sport plane in classroom is the headline. Um, the project teaches critical thinking, math, science, and perseverance, says the subhead. So it's great. I guess it's... Uh, a, oh, it's know. a quick. Yeah, they're building a quick silver. Yeah. And uh, there's a nice sweet picture of them all sitting uh, uh, surrounded or surrounding the uh, the aircraft, and uh, uh, it's just terrific. I mean, I just think it's a great uh, a way of of exposing kids to math and science, uh, getting involved with aviation um, at even at that young age. Uh, the sad part of the story, and I, this is totally me speculating, the sad part of the story is that that teacher probably paid for this airplane. Um, because I just can't well, imagine. Well, then again, he's getting free labor to construct. It, yeah, so that's right. And the <laughs> FAA won't have any problem with this, right? Fifty-one um, percent. Anyways, this is a great story. It's a great way to teach kids uh, about math and science and to expose them to aviation in the process. Uh, I think it's awesome. Uh, to she could uh, even ask the FAA if they can show her how it, how the percentage works out to fifty-one. Yeah, that's right. Because even a sixth grader can get it right. Um, what else? That's all oh, I, I got. got a You're, couple you, of quick. Go ahead, Jack. Jeb. Jeb. I, I just I was uh, gonna um, just. I, I don't know if we talked about it last episode or not. Uh, going down to Key West and, and hooking up with uh, Turbo. Oh yeah, we did. Yeah, we talked about it. Okay. Uh, yep. I was going to give that a shout out. So we, I'm, I'm a week late. Yeah, and, it's okay. Which is normal. Yeah, we talked all about that. I, okay, never mind. Short term memory loss is the first sign of of what? What were we, ta- what were we talking about? <laughs> yeah. Let's go ride bikes. <laughs> yeah, uh, David. Okay, I know you got one here. You've been holding back. Well, uh, gentlemen that I've had the pleasure of meeting on a few occasions, mostly when he was taking delivery of a new Cessna Citation. Is hanging up his wings this week. Uh, Arnold Palmer, uh, who turns 81, uh, who actually turned 81 on Monday, the 31st, uh, was planning on his final flight in his Citation 10. And I know a lot of people are going to roll their eyes and go, oh, well, how terrible is Citation 10. Not talking about a golfer who sits in the back while the crew he hires flies the airplane that he bought for an investment. Talking about one of the world's premier active GA pilots. Oh, yeah. A guy that set records in 747s and Learjets and along the way made flying part of his personal uh, his his personal life, his experience. Good friends with uh, uh, Russ Meyer, the former chairman of uh, Cessna. All around nice guy. Hanging it up on his own 
is the reason for this. And it made me think, you know, I hope I've got the good sense to recognize it when it's time for me to hang it up. Mm. So, Yeah, I saw that story. It, it is a sweet story, and you're right. He's been a terrific ambassador for general aviation, for personal aviation over the years. Um, the, those professional golfers do a lot of traveling, and uh, back in the day before they had an awful lot of money going around, they drove forever and forever and forever, and uh, they've gradually gotten their private jets, but, but Palmer was one of the first ones to go out and get a pilot, uh, pilot's license and to fly himself around the country. And I think he, although he had su- enough success that he was able to buy the big, the big uh, biz jets, he started he, flying 172s and so forth like the rest of us. And, uh, that's right. And, and and he flew little airplanes to golf tournaments for a long time yeah. before turbines came into the picture. Uh, and I got one other little shout-out when it's my turn again. It is your turn again. Uh, my buddy Ben, uh, who got me in the cockpit of a Taylor Craft Saturday when I wasn't expecting to do anything but hang out at Dead Cow. Uh, and I got some stick time, and as we were taxiing in, he says... Okay, be sure and bring your logbook when I'm going to see you next week at yada yada. And uh, we'll do this again in a week if you want. So I'm now on track to actually officially bona fide and legally do a BFR and a tailwheel endorsement in a lovely little tailor craft. Very cool. Yeah. In a lovely little tailor craft that the biggest surprise of all for me. Yeah. Was being able to get my broad self in and out of the seat without hurting myself. Okay. I'm glad you said that. Saved us the, uh, yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. What did you think flying that airplane? What was it like? Well, it was fun to uh, know that I remember what rudder pedals are for. Yeah. Uh, Because uh, that old T-Craft has pretty much no uh, dihedral. Uh, and the way it's coupled, if you don't use rudders going and coming from turns, you don't do coordinated turns. And uh, it came back very quickly, and eyeballing little things like pattern altitude matched up with what the altimeter actually said. So uh, in my lineup of landing pictures was pretty good, although my dexterity on the rudder pedals was a little bit slow. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do that again in a week or so, presuming that the thermal snow removal system at Dead Cow works between the 7 inches and the blizzard we've got here on Tuesday, February 1st, and next weekend about February 5th. So we'll see. We'll be rooting for you because that sounds very cool. Yeah. And and the airplane's for sale, and I think could be had really right. Oh, we'll have a talk with the boss, you know? You never know, right? Yeah. Anyways, uh, anything else? No? David, you're done? I'm done. Okay, well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, it's always fun to get together. Uh, Dave Higdon is, uh, of course, an aviation photographer and an aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, DaveHignan.biz, AvBuyer.com, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, AEA.net, or, you know, roll the dice, play a little Russian roulette, and just Google. 
And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the internet? AviationSafetyMagazine.com is a great place to start. Uh, also pop up on AvWeb.com and AEA.net. Uh, personal website is JEBurnside.com, and you can always Google it and you know just forget that stuff about the goats. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer <laughs> clips. <laughs> the UCAP Try dis- that again. Yeah, the UCAP disclaimer clips the, uh, and all the other uh, cool audio bits that we drop into the show. Uh, we're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the new, improved UCAP blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something. Average age in aviation is going up every year because people fly. And people fly because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. That's all for now, folks. Okay, so listen, I know this is an aviation podcast, but I want me some of them secret mushrooms. I'm sorry, they're not, <laughs> <laughs> they're not mushrooms. See, they're olives. Never mind. Stop. Secret olives. <laughs> okay, stop, stop, rewind. Stop, rewind. <laughs> Take two. Welcome to the olive pit. So listen, I know it's an aviation podcast, but here's the deal. I want me some of them secret olives, all right? Have you, uh, you've seen this story, right? Have you guys seen Yeah. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.